Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 130, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, a new study suggests that math looks the same in both the brains of boys and girls, and inside a news literacy camp, where the newsroom becomes the classroom. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, to teach or not to teach Shakespeare. Our guest tells us why it's been a struggle for her. Hello, everybody. Nick Gordigo here, and I'm joined by the Perky Principal, Christina Pollard. Hey, hey, hey. Christina, how are you doing? I am great today. You, you are being very kind to me, because I'm just going to go ahead and admit what I just did. Go ahead. Tell it. We just recorded like six minutes, and then I realized I didn't press record on the recorder. I almost started a Dougie Fresh song this then. <laughs> it was like, this is episode 130, and I've never done that. I've never not... Pres- I even do that to people like I'm working with. Like I'll record, like I'm shooting videos and stuff. I'll be like, oops, forgot to press record. Ha ha. But I'm joking, but I actually just did it. No joke, people. Yeah. He really forgot. Yeah. So here we are. But uh, anyways, back to what we were talking about since everyone missed it because I didn't press record. You got any big plans for Christmas? Oh, I cannot wait. I have family coming in town. I'm not traveling. My aunt and uncle are coming in from San Diego. Sandy, See, I've always wanted to go to San Diego. <laughs> San Diego is beautiful. I miss home. I miss home. But, you know, we're just so busy all the time. I mean, they always the joke is or the, the story is like... Where do I move to where the weather's perfect America's all the time? America's finest city. Is it really that great, though? Like, is the weather oh. really just... Like, do you get tired of, like, highs in the 70s? Like, is that a thing? Well, no. I mean, it's, it's you know, cool in the morning, um, the wind coming in off of the ocean, and then it's a beautiful 70s, 80s, sometimes 90s now. Okay. And then you know you're going to have a beautiful, breezy night. It's just perfect. I had no idea what winter coats and hats and gloves or any of that was until I moved to the South. That was, I didn't own a coat. That's weird. You didn't own a coat? My freshman you... year in college, when the weather changed, I was in a bind. Do you have a heater in your house when you live in San Diego? I'm, it's a serious question. Like, do you... Yes, like central air and heat. Okay. Because like, up in the Northwest, they don't put air conditioners in homes. You have, um, you have a million I think it just depends because you got to remember, you've got the valley, you got the deserts around there. Okay. I mean, you know, right up um, on Arizona. So there are a lot of central air and heat. But um, my growing up, I mean, we had a heater. But now, was were the windows open most of the time? Yes. Okay. So it's just like that was the thing. Mm-hmm. And does it rain much? Is it like dry and oh, dusty? Oh, it rains a lot. Okay. It does rain a lot. Okay. so But it's it not... just depends. I mean, you know. Well, but it was still the best weather. Okay, so if I'm going to San Diego uh, and I only have 36 hours, what do I need to see? If I make oh, trip? you definitely want to go to Coronado, which is North Island across the bridge. You want to hit Seaport Village; it's so much fun. The gas lamp, gas lamp district in downtown San Diego, and obviously you've got to go up and down the coastline and hit as many beaches as you can. It's they, just beautiful. They still use gas lamps, like literally. Um, <laughs> that's funny. They do have some, but it is called the Gas Lamp District, and it is just kind of like Bill Street in yeah. um, Memphis, but it's so much fun. So many restaurants and bars and clubs, and just you know, fun things to to entertain yourself. I'm sold. 
I'm going. Uh, You've got to go. Uh, tell me about the teacher's lounge. What's going on today? You know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about gender equality. We talk about right now whether women are being paid um, is fair, you know, as with men and are, are men dominating particular areas. Well, I've, I've run across an article recently that there's some new research being done that shows there really is no difference between uh, boys and girls within their brain activity in regard to um, developing math skills. Okay, so I think, I, w- I guess... I- I never thought that there was, right? Like, well, there was but, a lot of talk about it. When really? you look that um, in the computer science industry, mostly men get those jobs or even run after math and science, um, you know, degrees. And really, it just relegated, you know, women to other areas. And it was stated that boys do better in math um, and that girls do better in reading and language arts. Hmm. But the new research proves my point we are equal yeah we're all equal and i guess the only w- reason i can think maybe that let's just take um computer developers for chance yes. an industry dominated by men for the most part um is because maybe they find it more interesting but i i think I that they they just feel much more comfortable with something like math that is concrete right. you know you have ideas you fill out you figure out how to build them how to make them match which is like programming and it works Whereas a lot of other areas require a lot of analysis, a lot of reading, and a lot of comprehension. And women have more patience for it. I love having a little girl. I have a four-year-old. And, and but she's I, precious. She is. And, and I also have these two older boys. And it's been so, I don't know if you want to call it therapeutic, eye-opening, whatever. Like the way I look at what her life is going to be like. You've and, got the best of both worlds. I'm jealous. Right. And it really is. But also I, I look at things differently in the sense that I want her to have those opportunities. Yes. I, if she wants to be a computer Be exposed to any and everything. And, and I watch her, what she's really good at is building stuff. Like mm-hmm. this girl can like Legos and like magnetic things. Like she can like build these amazing castles. I'd like to know what her face looks like and what her body language is like um, when she's doing that. Because in the article, you know, they took boys and girls of the same age range and they studied them and they watched how they reacted mm-hmm. to different things. And there really was no difference. They were all extremely engaged. They all paid attention to detail. So I wonder, you know. That's it. Yeah, she she is very intense. And I mean, like she'll spend, we got her these like magnetic type blocks. Or they're really just like sheets and you like can build different squares and pyramids and geodes or whatever. And I mean, she will spend hours playing that. And we got her some, I think, two Christmases ago. So she was two. Wow. And she played with them all year long. And so we bought more. And now she builds bigger stuff. But don't you think and, all of this evolved from... It, like it's really our fault and how we describe gender roles. I mean, think right. back to, you know, your favorite TV, TV, television shows before our time. Mom always had an apron on. Right. Dad came home for dinner with a, a briefcase and a suit and tie on. And it was good. What did that explain? It, it, I, I don't know that world because my mom worked and I'm glad she did just for the example that she worked. And I didn't know. And, and I'll be honest. My wife works more hours. I, I do a lot of freelance work. I do all the grocery shopping. I do the cooking. Like when she comes wow. home, like dinner's there. Husband, are you listening but, to Nick? But it's just because that's what works for us, right? right. Like that's that's where I it, and I also enjoy cooking. But I mean, it's you know it, because of our time and our schedule and stuff. And I don't say that to like make another guy feel bad. I just say it no. It's just what works in your household. I, I just try to ignore the fact that like you know 
the wife's supposed to cook. And my husband goes to, to the grocery store. He'll pay attention to things that are missing. He knows my days are very long, especially if I have sports at night after the long school day. Right. Um, and we just make it happen too. But when I think about those television shows and being a small child and watching them with my mom or, you know, with the family, subliminally there are messages sent. So, so what can you, can you tell me anything about this? At the end of the day, this is a study, this is research backing the fact that the brains are the same. The brains are the same. So we need to continue to encourage both boys and girls into the fields of math and science. All right. So looking at this, what what we're looking at, the, the research was actually published in the journal Science of Learning. And it looks like it came out of, at least with a professor from Carnegie Mellon University, which, you know, is one of the leading uh, when it comes to that type of work. So I will link um, this information into the show notes should anybody want to kind of dive deeper. It's a great article. Very interesting whether you're an educator or not. Right. And it actually was picked up by um, NPR. So uh, really good stuff there. Um, I had a story that hit close to home for me that um, I just found today. And it made me think like this is something I wish I would have done when I was working in a newsroom and running a newsroom. And it was all about, you know, we've, we've done episodes about news literacy and how we should teach kids and how we should teach um, librarians and teachers. And out of San Francisco, the San Francisco Chronicle helped like lead a conference, if you will, where local teachers and librarians came. They set up seminars and like breakouts where you would see editors from the San Francisco Chronicle actually like talking about like what work yesterday's in yesterday's news it was it was current and how they identify the stories for the next day and how they Oh wow, I um, bet that was an interesting experience. Yeah, so and, and they allowed teachers to kind of ask questions and watch and watch that process of of how stories are picked and then how they can tell if, you know, news if, if a pitch is a real idea or is it worthy to be picked up as a news story cuz that that would be so easy to emulate in any city really in the country like any local tv station goes through or newspaper goes through the process of selecting news on a daily basis like i had a meeting every morning that i ran and and i think that really would be valuable for educators to it see it is valuable they got to see the backstory on the planning the reflection and the final product which is exactly what teachers go through with lesson planning it, that and i just feel like with the the world that we're in and trying to teach students about news literacy and what to believe and what to, you know, as you're to going, identify credibility. Yeah, exactly. I feel like this conversation, this exchange of some group and news and educators needs to happen because as we know, I mean, how do you think you're, you teach up to eighth grade, but I mean, high schoolers, you have a high schooler. Does, does he watch the news? Is he engaged in anything? Actually, like that? he always has. I am a huge fan um, of watching the news. I don't watch a lot of television shows. I, you yeah. know, by the time I get home in the evening, I want to know what's going on in the world. And um, for many years before he became a teenager, <laughs> he did. He watched the news with me. He could discuss it. He would go to school and tell his teacher about what he saw in the news. And even now he'll stop and ask me questions about things he's come across online. Uh, my opinion of it or whatnot. So he's always been inquisitive. My older son, not so much. My older boys really like go and seek out news, but they get their news from Twitter, Twitter, but also things like John Oliver, like comedians, like, yes. And, um, which I know if somebody's on the far right, they're cringing, but I mean, that's where they get it from. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're going to be indoctrinated by these people who are somewhat satirical, but also offering information and the idea of them just like flipping on the local news, 
I don't. It's ever, not going to happen. I don't see that ever happening. No, it's going to have to be a national network um, and something that's being talked about everywhere for our student, for our young people to you know really think about it. And and so I kind of wonder like if um, you have a story that impacts them locally. Let's just say the city council is going to you know do something that might affect the high school in some way, um, close a road that runs to the high school, or or maybe set a curfew for kids, mm-hmm. right? Like. They it would never end up on their radar unless like somebody got mad about it and posted it in their That's Instagram exactly feed, or Twitter right. feed, or, or Facebook feed. There's no like constant monitoring of what's happening on a local level. It's not, and you know, when you think about back when we were in school, um, there was something we called uh, current events, mm-hmm. and we were required to bring in a news article and share and talk about it. So we were being taught about the you know how important that information is. You know, there's not we don't do that anymore. And I almost wonder like. You're, you're more on the outside than I was. I mean, I was actually part of the news media. Do do news media folks, I mean, are they looked at like attorneys or? Yes. They're like, they're you like, are not human. Right. Um, you don't shop at Walmart. You are always in your suit and tie and you have a microphone in your hand at all times. Yeah, but I almost mean like, are we starting to get kind of like attorneys? There's like lots of lawyer jokes, right? Right. Are, are news people kind of starting to become a joke? Whereas in the past, maybe they were taken a lot more seriously. They were taken very seriously in the past. And now you just don't know. You you worry about what CEOs or, you know, networks are clearly either on the left or clearly on the right. And you can tell by how they deliver their their news. Um, not only that, just what they deem is important, which may not really be important to the communities. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I feel like they sensationalize a lot of stories to get ratings. Exactly. And then because it's not because you aren't just pushing for those ratings that are happening in the the half hour window and the six or the the 10 o'clock news. Now you're pushing for clicks Mm -hmm. and you will, you know, give a misleading headline. That's exactly right. To get those clicks. I see it all the time and it frustrates Mm -hmm. me a lot. It frustrates the readers, too. And and there's been times where, like, I've wanted to call out local you know, media and stuff around here, but I just am too diplomatic to, I don't want to burn bridges and stuff with people, but it's frustrating for me to see. And it should be if you you truly, you know, believe in ethics and, you know, believe in fidelity of journalism. Right. Um, But I like this idea of local news teaming up with local teachers, even for like a day to like see the process. You think you can get that kind of orchestrated here locally? I I think it would be amazing. I I think it would be that that certainly might be something I need to put on my radar for sure. Um, So anyhow, something to keep in mind. Are you ready for the bright idea? I'm ready. Our guest in today's bright idea segment is here to talk about her struggle in deciding whether or not to teach Shakespeare to her students. Christina Torres is an eighth grade teacher, an English teacher actually, in Honolulu, Hawaii, and her work on this subject was recently published in Education Week. Christina, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me. You actually have a, a college background, I think we should say, in both English and theater. Yes. So therefore, one would assume that that you love Shakespeare. And also, you've been teaching students Romeo and Juliet for the past six years. That's all correct, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, definitely a background in both. A lot of a lot of work with Shakespeare throughout my whole really academic career, um, but teaching it certainly for gosh, six years at least. I actually did teach um, in my second year of teaching, so it might actually be seven, just not Romeo and Juliet. Had a different play. So it's fair to say, though, that you at least have an appreciation for Shakespeare, and and I mean, do you do you like it? Oh yeah, I so that's that's actually what's been so interesting about this whole thing for me is I love Shakespeare 
not only do I love reading Shakespeare, I've actually performed in a couple of Shakespeare plays, either in college or out here in Hawaii. Actually, I've been part of the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival before um, as a performer. So a deep, deep love for the Bard's work. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting. <laughs> okay, so, so then I, I read this article and you say you've been feeling guilty mm-hmm. about teaching this to your students. So why is that? So I think for me, the guilt comes from wondering what would it mean, though, if my students had more access to literature from someone of a similar background? Because as much as I love Shakespeare, and I've actually written about this before, I didn't get access to to literature from someone who was Latino, and I'm half Mexican, half Filipino, until I was like my junior year of high school. Um, and it was like this huge revelation, like, oh, here's a Mexican writer writing about things I understand. It was so overwhelming. And I feel a little sad that that didn't happen to me until I was 16, right? And so I do wonder, unfortunately, just because of the nature of time in teaching Shakespeare, am I taking space that I could give to an author that would have a similar experience, like could have a similar effect on my students as that moment of reading Richard Rodriguez, a Richard Rodriguez essay and an AP test did for me? So it's more about identifying than it is just students. I mean, I, I have a, a child who's who's a freshman in high school, and, and he mm-hmm. recently read Shakespeare, and, and he liked it. But at the same time, he's like, I mean, they just talk so stupid. Like, is what he tells me, you know. <laughs> so, so I mean, you yeah. must know that like kids kind of think that way, and but that really doesn't go into your thinking and, and saying like, uh, maybe I need to stop doing this. No, no, not at all. Partially because I, I think that's a general reaction for kids. I admittedly have that had that reaction. One of the first times I look at Shakespeare, I was like, no one talks like this. And it wasn't until later that I realized how much beauty there was in that. Or, you know, I had to write a sonnet, I remember in high school, and I complained to my English teacher, like, this is so dumb. Why can't I just write the way I want to write? And he said, there's something beautiful about being able to put your feelings into this template, like it forces you to be creative. Um, and I grew a lot from that. And so I've imparted that to my kids. So no, I think kids can learn to love the language. And even if they don't, they, they, it's good to be exposed to it, but it's much more, am I doing that though, at a disservice to finding literature that is more diverse is something that either connects with them or frankly, is just not something they hear a lot from such as black authors, indigenous authors, LGBTQ authors, things like that. You cite, I think maybe a couple of podcasts and maybe some other, um, you know, works that say there's some Shakespeare, there's a few stories, plays where it maybe is misogynistic or, you know, racist, um, anti-Semitic, right? I mean, can you kind of point to a few of those just so anyone who's listening and has no idea what we're talking about, but where that may exist? Yeah. So the podcast that I'm referring to is NPR's Code Switch, and they did a really great episode on Shakespeare. And in that episode, um, they interviewed Dr. Ayana Thompson, who I'm just double checking. Um, so yeah, Dr. Ayana Thompson, she's at um, Arizona State University, and she's uh, a huge scholar on Shakespeare and also looks at Shakespeare through the lens of race. And what she talked about how in her eyes, there are three irredeemable plays from the lens of performance, not, I believe, not from study. And she talks about how uh, the Merchant of Venice is very anti-Semitic. Othello is really problematic as regards to race, um, particularly because Othello does end up kind of being this violent character that kills his wife. Um, and then Taming of the Shrew is is very misogynistic, and the ending does not seem to really <laughs> push against that that idea of taming the quote unquote shrew. Um, and so there are, there are these issues of 
you know, and, and I hear the argument of like, Shakespeare was a man of his time, like all of these things. Oh, I've heard people say, well, if you look at Shakespeare through the lens of this, like maybe he's actually being subversive. And all of that is true. And I absolutely believe you can teach Shakespeare that way. That doesn't for me answer the question of, but why do we have to teach so much Shakespeare? And like, what would it mean to teach Shakespeare at all? So I actually heard from someone who's a big scholar in the Shakespeare community and, and works, you know, in, in a in a very prominent role with with some Shakespeare scholars. And he even said sometimes he wishes he could just put a pause, everyone not teach or read Shakespeare for five years just to see what would happen. Just because he is so pre like Shakespeare is so prevalent in our education system. And like what would it mean if we actually took a step back from him and and looked at do we really need to teach him? Do we really need to teach him as much as we do? What does that actually mean? What are we actually saying when we do that? Well, and, and you, you raise a good point. And I can't remember how many Shakespeare plays or books that that I was subjected to going through all of my schooling. I, I would guess mm -hmm. four, maybe three, four. But mm -hmm. you said maybe five at your school? Uh, oh, so no. At, at my school, it's probably three. From, it, I'm, I teach at a K through 12 school now. Right. Um, so for my school, it's, it's three, one in eighth grade and then two in the high school, I believe. But I've talked with teachers. And when I first published my article, I heard many teachers telling me that they have kids that get Shakespeare every grade six through 12. Um, wow. every year they're getting a Shakespeare play, which and feels why, like a lot. <laughs> yeah. How did we, how did we get there? Like, I mean, is he that important? Is he the one person? I mean, I'm trying to think of another author right? where we read multiple <laughs> works. Or where we read that, where you're required to read that much by one author, particularly in, in any kind of academic setting. And, you know, I still, I'm pretty sure still that Shakespeare is the only author required by the Common Core. There are definitely parts of the Common Core that recommend other authors or have options for other authors, or it's like part of their like other, you know, like other thing, other like recommended reading list. But Shakespeare very clearly exists as a, you teach this through a Shakespeare play, at least one Shakespeare play in one of the Common Core standards. And so that institutionalization of Shakespeare's work in our education system really makes you question like, why is he in there? Why is it that every single one of us has read a Shakespeare play, but not every one of us has read Audre Lorde or James Baldwin? Or, you know, there are, I live in Hawaii, right? There are plenty of people who've never read anything by a Hawaiian author and know very little about the islands of Hawaii, um, including me when I first moved out here. And that, I think that's something that's, that's a huge that's a huge gap for a lot of people. And could we not take out at least some of the Shakespeare to start filling some of those gaps? Well, and so when you started writing this piece, how serious were you, I mean, about possibly like pulling this out of your curriculum? I, I, you, I know you haven't gotten there at this point, but would you seriously consider just stopping? So for me, I would consider, and this is part of like a conversation with a larger school community. And I feel really grateful, by the way, that when I published this article, mm -hmm. my admin read it. I didn't tell them I was writing it. They read it. And they immediately said, like, we think this article is great. Like, we're really open to this discussion. Like, let's talk at least as a middle school. Like, what what would do we need to be teaching Shakespeare in the eighth grade? So I feel really grateful that my school is super open to my ideas. Um, I would consider taking out Romeo and Juliet. Um, for me, and so what I end up saying in the article for folks that haven't read it is that I still think Shakespeare is valuable because there is cultural capital in knowing Shakespeare. And I don't want to take that away from my students. I can't change the fact that Shakespeare is prevalent everywhere. Yeah, it's almost like part of pop culture, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. 
Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And so I don't want to take that away from them. Um, So I I still want them to read at least one Shakespeare play in their, you know, in their K through 12, six through 12 career at my school. So because I know they get it twice in the high school, I would feel comfortable stopping and maybe substituting. There's a lot of really beautiful plays that come from Hawaii that a lot of people even in Hawaii haven't read. And I would really love to expose my students to that. So I could see substituting a play from Hawaii by a local writer. Um, so, or even, you know, there are some really great pigeon language. So pigeons, one of the, one of the languages used out here in Hawaii, there are some great pigeon language adaptations of Shakespeare. And what would it mean if we taught one of those to our students instead? So I would feel comfortable doing that. And so we have talked about maybe doing that next year. Admittedly, like we're all just trying to make it to the holidays right, right now. Yeah. So we haven't talked in depth about it, but it is a conversation that we're willing to have for next year. But some of that is because we know our students will get it later in high school. Now, I know you you know that you're putting yourself out there because you cite a, a Washington Post story. I think it was from like 2015, mm-hmm. but yes. where this this teacher published something in, in the paper there basically saying, I'm, I'm no longer teaching Shakespeare. And they were ridiculed mm-hmm. on, on Facebook. Um, so why put yourself out there like that? I mean, do you just feel this that strongly about it? Um, what a great question because I did sit there with like, do I want to write this article? <laughs> what does this mean for me? Um, and I did definitely, I have gotten a lot, not, a, I mean, not as much as, as that author and her piece I think was, I don't want to teach Shakespeare, even though the common core tells me to. Um, and, and I did think like, do I really want to open myself up to this for anyone that, that knows me or knows my writing? I have admittedly never shied away from uncomfortable. I've been putting myself out there for a long time now. So in some ways I'm used to it. Uh, For me specifically though, it's two things. One is I do feel really strongly about it when I think about how we have to subvert concepts of the canon in literature and what we consider canonical and what we say has power. Because even though, so people tell me like, well, why didn't you still assign Shakespeare but make these more quote unquote diverse texts as part of optional reading or as part of, you know, choice reading for kids which I hear that. But the thing is, inherently, because of my, because my kids have been socialized to see me as an authority and expert in the English language, because I'm their teacher, whether or not I'm an expert, um, what I say has power. And so when I say Shakespeare is worthy of study, but this text by a local Hawaiian writer is just an optional reading, that creates a power differential. And I think that's really problematic. And that's something that we should all be thinking about when we refer to certain texts as the canon or canonical. The other half of it for me is that I do, I, I also recognize that I'm coming, even though, you know, I'm a woman of color, I still have a lot of privilege. I, I am you know, I'm, you know, I, I ended up going to college and having a master's degree and, you know, and, and I work at this very, this very, very well-resourced private school now. And my private school is really open to ideas and open to discussion. And my private school is pretty well known, particularly on Island. And it's the school Barack Obama went to. So a lot of people know it that way. And so I do think that because I'm in a position of privilege, I want to use my platform and my privilege to raise up these ideas in ways that you know, other teachers might either not have time or resources to do in the way that I do, or just not feel safe in their school culture to be able to share these opinions. Um, so I think it's important for me to use that privilege and platform in, in ways that I think are meaningful to try and subvert some of these ideas. And so I know you talk about striking a balance and, and you're, you've kind of led into this a little bit. I mean, how do we find that balance. I mean, let's assume a, a teacher's listening to this and, th- and they like what you're saying, they agree with you, but they still have to sh- teach Shakespeare. I mean, is there a way to kind mm-hmm. of rein back or, or maybe change the curriculum up a little bit? Anything cross your mind? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I really want to point everyone to, and this is by no means sponsored, I just actually got in touch with them at the beginning of the year. And that's what led me to write this article. But the, you know, the, the Folger Shakespeare Library is such a powerful resource. And they have an online resource called, I believe it's called Forsooth, which is an adorable name, um, where it's a, a teacher community of resources. And I love the Folger method, but partially because one of their main pillars is end the Shakespeare worship. We're like, take Shakespeare off the pedestal. If you keep Shakespeare on this pedestal of he's the most amazing writer, you cannot actually have a meaningful conversation with his texts. So they do a lot of great work around teaching Shakespeare through the lens of race or having conversations around misogyny and and Shakespeare and things like that. So Folger has a lot of great resources that I would point people towards. I also think it's important in that spirit for teachers not to keep teaching Shakespeare as this is the best writing that's ever existed. I just, one, don't believe that you can equivocally, like not, you know, completely say that um, because there's a lot of opinions on what good writing looks like. I also like, we need to stop teaching Shakespeare as this idea of this is the most beautiful language or the only intricate language or the most poetic language we can look at. I think Gabriel Garcia Marquez would have some things to say to that (laughs) as far as, you know, when we think about other authors we could look at. Um, we, if we're going to teach Shakespeare, I think we need to be able to have a real conversation with that text and let our kids not like Shakespeare if they don't want to like it. They shouldn't have to like all the things that we like. Um, and also calling out Shakespeare when he does say problematic things. We can, we can acknowledge that it was timely for him to say those things and also tell our students that it's wrong. So when I do Romeo and Juliet with my kids, when Shakespeare some, says something really misogynistic, I will literally pause and explain it and then do a thumbs down and go boo and talk about why that's not okay now. Um, so we can do both. We can still read the text, but also critically analyze the text from a modern point of view and call out like, yes, this was acceptable then, but it's not okay now. Good stuff. Well, Christina, I know you mentioned that, you know, about your writings, uh, you must, you blog somewhere, right? Like you have a website, where can people keep up with you? Oh, um, so I, oh, so <laughs> I'm currently writing for Education Week. A week. I write about once a month for their teacher voices page and their opinion section. Um, I'm generally online, particularly on Twitter. I'm at biblio underscore file. Um, so that's a really good, yeah, I know. It's one of those things I made a screen name in college and now it is. <laughs> and so that's what I'm left with. Um, or ChristinaTorres.org is actually another place where I can be found. Well, your your screen name in college is probably a lot more innocent than, than a lot of us. So <laughs> that's yeah, fair. yeah, you did good. Um, well, Christina, are you ready for our pop quiz? I am. And yeah, I actually I have no idea what any of these questions are. So I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really in it. I'm dealing with what some students deal with sometimes. So yeah, exactly. let's do it. Yeah, you can't just dish it. Uh, first question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? <sighs> That's such a mean question. <laughs> um, oh, man. I would actually say as much as I love English, I would say social studies because social studies gets to encapsulate like civic or I hope it does encapsulate civics education and history and things like that and you can learn so much from those things so that you can at least be good people so maybe social studies that's a hard one what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching um understandings of race class and race class privilege and and larger societal oppression so that we can overcome that oppression what does every child deserve Every child deserves a classroom, at least in school. 
because that's what I can control. Every child deserves a classroom where they feel safe, included, and like their voice matters. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Balancing uh, a climate in which we're starting to, as a nation, have really tough discussions around race, class, privilege, things like that, while still having such a hard time looking at those things in our past. What's the best gift to give an educator? <sighs> time. <laughs> time to, to relax, to come down. If it, if it can't be time in some way, then uh, particularly for public school educators, resources, you know, asking them for resources for their classroom or just a gift card so they can get resources for their classrooms. I, I know you laugh about time. That is our most common answer. Oh my God, and, time. And yeah, yeah. So I, every, every teacher must feel the same. Yes. Um, which teacher changed your life? <sighs> Another tough question. Um, I'm going to say Mr. Biggs. He was my AP literature teacher in high school, my senior year at Elisa Miguel High School. Not only did he really push me as a writer and was just like a really caring and understanding educator, but when I became a teacher, he actually helped me out a lot, gave me some of his resources, like my first syllabus came from him. Um, and I'm actually still in contact with him today. Very good. And last question, pen or pencil? Oh, um, pen. Because who care? I don't, I don't really care about just crossing stuff out. And, you know, life is full of cross outs and I'm okay with that. Plus, you don't have to sharpen it. Christina Torres, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us on Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.